In Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In the movie Benny and June, Benny is an auto mechanic and he owns a repair shop. At one point in the movie, there's a scene where he's in there working on a car, and a, I think it's a friend that has stopped by to talk to him. He's talking to him about his wife, and he said that his wife had asked him this question, Do you need me? And he's a little perplexed with this question. He didn't know what to do with that. He says, Do I need her? Benny, what, is it, what does it mean to need someone? Well, I can't help as I was thinking about this passage, this verse, in verse 24 this week, about that, you know, maybe sometimes some of us have the same, same question about the phrase that God used in here. He says, And the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. What does it, what does it mean for two to become one flesh? There's at least four different aspects that I see to this one flesh principle that are spelled out for us here in the Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The first one that we see is that there's a material aspect to it. God has created Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he says it's not good for man to be alone. He puts Adam to sleep. He pulls a rib out of Adam, fashions that into Eve, and then Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so there's a material unity that is expressed here. All of humanity traces back into Adam. That's a very important theological point because we trace that through the rest of the Bible. We see that the reason that we're all sinners is because we trace back to Adam. There's one human race. You know, something came up about a race issue the other day, and my wife Lisa presented it very well. She said, I actually don't like that word race. Because we're the human race. There aren't different races. There's a lot of different people groups within the human race, but we're one race. We all trace our ancestry back to Adam. In fact, we're going to learn a little bit more about that when we get up to the Tower of Babel. So with Adam and Eve, there was definitely a material aspect of this one flesh. In fact, when you think about it, it's kind of ironic, but Adam already was one flesh when he started. So God actually took one, made it into two, brought it back into one. And so it's kind of an interesting thought when you, when you picture what all happened at that point. So obviously there has to be more than a material unity to it as well, or a material aspect, because if, if that was the, the only part of it, then you'd say all of us are one flesh. We all go back to Adam. We all share the same flesh from Adam, so we'd all be one flesh. And God is using it to describe, he says, the two shall become one flesh. So it has to be more than just a material aspect to this idea of one flesh. There's also a relational aspect. Because we talked about last week how our marriage was designed to be a marriage of unity, of priority, and of intimacy. And so there's a relational aspect. They would be one in their relationship with one another. But then also we recognize that there's a procreational aspect to it. There's a procreational unity. When you look at the creation and how we reproduce, we have two, a husband and wife, come together, 27 chromosomes from the husband, 27 chromosomes for the wife, and you have one child. And so you see it very graphically expressed through procreation. Two come together and they make another. They make one that is distinct in their own person. And so you see this illustrated through procreation. But then there's one final aspect of it as well, and that's the one that I want to spend most of our time on today, and that is that there's a sexual aspect. When God said, and the two shall become one, 
because he's talking about the material aspect, the relational aspect, the procreational aspect, but he's also focusing on this sexual aspect, that we would be relating together in a way that demonstrated our oneness. And when you think about sex, that's what it is. Sex, you have two people coming together and intermingling together as close as you possibly can in a physical way. It's supposed to be a celebration of and a recognition of the unity that we have within our relationship. That's our sexuality. Well, we see that God clearly intended to be referring to sexuality in this, if we skip forward a little bit up into the New Testament. Because in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, in verse 15 and following, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So notice in this passage, it's talking about sexual immorality, having sex outside of marriage. And it uses the prostitute as an example. And it says, if you're trusting in Christ, you're a member of Christ's body. Will you then take the members of Christ's body and unite them to a prostitute? And it says there really is a uniting happening here because it quotes this passage, Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. And so that is a proof that God has this idea of two becoming one being expressed within a sexual relationship. You know, there's, there's kind of a couple different ways of thinking about sexuality within our culture. And that is, one, on the one hand, that sex is good. And so because sex is good, then it ought to be participated in liberally and freely. And it's kind of like another appetite. It's kind of like having an appetite for food. or You should fulfill that appetite however you feel like it. On the other side of that would be the opposite of that, that sex is bad, that sex has all kinds of dangers that are involved within it. And, and so you need to safeguard yourself and you need to watch out. And you know what? I would say that somewhere right in the middle is where we find the Word of God. Sex is good, but at the same time, there are definitely dangers involved with it and pitfalls, and it has, a, it has limitations, let's put it that way. Well, if sex is good, then why, some people ask, why does it have limitations? I was thinking about that this week. Why the limitations? I want you to follow a flow of thought with me for a few moments. First part of the flow of thought is that God created sex. God created it. Now, now think about that. Do you ever, you ever think about God making chocolate? I mean, we have chocolate. I don't, I don't know how, where it comes from or how it's made. I don't know anything about that stuff. But you know what? With whatever ingredients you put together or whatever the case is, chocolate. I, I'm, I'm not a huge chocolate fan. I like my M&Ms with peanuts in them. A little bit more. Lisa likes them plain. Don't corrupt the chocolate. She's a big chocolate, right? You ever think, why did God make something that tastes as good as chocolate? Why would he do that? Why would he make something as beautiful as the sunrise? Or the sunset, if you're more like me. Catch the later one, not the early morning show. Right? Why, why, does, why, why, does, why does he make things taste so good, feel so good, look so good? Is it, is it not for our pleasure? I think, it, I think it must be. So that we experience it and then we reflect that back to God and say, you are, You're glorious. You're beautiful. 
You're awesome. That has to be the purpose in those things. So God created sex. He created it to be what it is. And you know what? Sex is awesome. It's a marvelous experience. It's good. Because God created it, he realized it was already in existence when he hit Genesis 1.31, which says, and behold, everything, he looked at everything that he made, and it was all good. By that time, he created Adam, he created Eve, he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so it's all there. The whole process, all of it's there. And God says it's all very good. And so sex is part of that, which is very good. So God created sex. Not only that, but we also see that God commanded sex. Because he commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply to fill up the earth. There's no way to be fruitful and multiply without sex. And he says, do it a lot. Fill up the earth. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, he commands husband and wives to come together intimately like this often and regularly for the expression of their relationship with one another. And for the wife not to hold back from the husband and the husband not to hold back from the wife. And he even tells them, you can stop for a short period, occasionally, if two things happen. One is that you both agree together to stop, and then if it's for something very important, like a season of prayer, he says, but then at the end of that season of prayer, come back together again and enjoy your relationship together. God would not give us those kinds of commands if it wasn't something good that he wanted us participating in. The third point is that God crushed his own son to provide our redemption. Now, what does this have to do with sex? Follow my thinking here. The point is we see God's love for us. God loves us so much that he is willing to sacrifice his own son on that cross to see all the agony that he went through to provide for our forgiveness. That's how much God loves us. When we get to Christ, Christ confirmed God's original purposes in sexuality and in marriage. When he was questioned about marriage, divorce, he pointed back to Genesis back to this passage and said it hasn't changed. Still the same. Same purposes, same function. So the question is, since he created sex to be as good as it is, commanded us to participate in it within our marriages, loves us so much that he's willing to give his own son to die for us, does it then make sense that he limits it in order to somehow keep us from experiencing the happiness and the fulfillment that is within it? No. That doesn't make sense at all. You see, the reason sex is limited is because it is so good. It's not limited because it's bad. It's limited because it's incredibly good. That's why it's limited. You know, yesterday at the, at the Valentine luncheon, afterwards we were picking up and cleaning up and stuff like that, and my granddaughter was, was here, and she was helping where she could, and she's 10 years old, and... and um, You know, at one point, she goes up to Judy's table to start helping to pick up the stuff on the table. Now, if you were at the luncheon yesterday, the blue dishes over there at Judy's table uh, that set up her whole table, well, they're 85 years old. And so my 10-year-old granddaughter stepped up to the table to start picking up the 85-year-old dishes. And her grandmother, whose age doesn't matter, says, (laughs) says, no. No, hold on. Let's get you something else to do. These are 85 years old. And Annalie immediately took a step back from the table and recognized, okay, (laughs) this this is not for me to help with. Why? Why were there limitations? Because of the value. You see, there's, lim- there's limitations on things that are valuable, limitations on importance. And that's the way it is with sexuality as well. 
God designed it to be so awesome, so great, such an experience of oneness that that's why it's limited. If you participate in this outside of the parameters that God puts it in, then it, you miss out. You, you lose. You sell yourself short. It's a, it's a cheap imitation if it's used in a more of a recreational sense or in a way that does not signify the things that God intended it to signify. Then it's cheap and it's hollow. And then it is destructive. And then it is hurtful. Then it does lead to guilt and shame. Then it does lead to emptiness and loneliness. But expressed with inside God's limitations, it's uh, marvelous and it's beautiful. Well, as we look at it, let's look at those limitations. The first thing that we see as we look in this verse is that it's a, it's a natural relationship. By saying natural, we're saying that it is consistent with what we see built into the creation. And what did God build into the creation? He built a man. He built a woman. He brought them together as husband and wife. And that is a natural relationship. And so it, it's all the foolishness in our society, and unfortunately even within churches today, about uh, trying to affirm and endorse uh, same-sex marriage, it's, it's unnatural. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible says about it. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22 in the Old Testament, the context coming up into this is Israel is coming into the Promised Land, or they're in the Promised Land. And God says, look, there's been a whole host of people that you've been growing up around in Egypt, and there's a whole host of people that have been living in this land before you, and they've been participating in a lot of things that are very ungodly, and you're going to be different. You're not going to participate in these things. And in the list is this idea of same-sex unions. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Some people are determined to misunderstand it, but it really is, it really is as simple as it reads. In Romans chapter 1, we find the same thing in the New Testament. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, what he's talking about is, is people that though that you can see God within creation, Though the evidences of God abound all around us in the things that are seen, they refused to recognize God as God and to glorify Him in that way. Well, that's exactly the same thing that we do when we decide to, to step outside of God's boundaries in this area of sexuality. We are refusing to acknowledge God as God. We are refusing to give Him the glory and to pursue another path. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible just states it plainly. This is unnatural, it says. When people turn their back on God, they get to the point where they will do unnatural things. And God says the, the natural is a man with a woman. The unnatural, woman with woman, man with man, those are unnatural expressions of a sexual reality. You know, people often try to point out, well, that's talking about idolatry. That's true. It's talking about people that, turned, that did not glorify God as God and worship and serve the Creator or the creature rather than the Creator. But it says when we do that, at what, look at the point, the level to which we will sink. You know what, that's a sad part in, in churches around America today. You'll find churches that try to affirm and try to support uh, this idea of gay marriage or gay unions. The fact of the matter is, is if you're worshiping a God that affirms homosexuality, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. You are in idolatry. Those two things go hand in hand. They like to try to argue from silence. So they'll say things like this. Well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He never shot it down, so what's wrong with it? 
Yes, he did. He was asked about marriage, and Jesus said, Genesis 2, man, woman, two shall become one. What God has brought together, let no one separate. If you want to argue from silence, here is the silence. What the Bible does not affirm. You do not find one place in the Bible where same-sex relationship is spoken of in a positive light. You find places where homosexuality is judged and judged severely. You never find one relationship, one mention of homosexuality, one example of a, of a homosexual couple within Scripture that is in a positive light. They will try to make them. We'll try to manufacture them once in a while. I remember years ago I was in Seattle driving down the road listening to a radio show. They had a gay priest on there. And he was talking about a passage where Jesus healed a man's son. And he said, now that word for son there actually is talking about his, his partner. When I got home that day from work, I pulled out my Greek New Testament and I opened it up and I read it. Huios, son. First year Greek grammar. That's what you, one of the first year words you learn. Son. That's all it means, son. He completely lied to everybody. And how many thousands of people heard that over the radio waves around the Seattle area and just, oh, really? Wow. Huh. And it was completely false. I heard the same thing recently. Somebody was talking about when the centurion's servant was healed. That servant was actually his partner. Jesus acknowledged the centurion's faith, sent him back into that relationship. I went home, looked it up, and meant this is it's a word for slave. It had nothing to do with this idea of partner. In fact, the centurion even said to Jesus, he said, I'm in charge, and when I tell them to do something, they do it. It was his servant. And so they'll, they'll lie and manufacture some things, but the fact of the matter is within Scripture you find not one example of a homosexual relationship that is looked upon with favor. Not only that, but you do not find one command on how to function within the same-sex relationship. You realize that there is a host of passages on how husbands should treat their wives, how wives should respond to their husbands, how parents should deal with their children, how young people should deal with older people, There's a, how slaves even should deal with their masters and masters with their slaves. There's a whole host of verses on about every relationship that you can think of under the sun. No place in Scripture does it tell how people within a same-sex marriage should relate to one another. Why? Because God doesn't want anybody in that kind of a relationship. And then also, you do not find inclusive language. It's always described the same in the, in the family. It always talks to husbands, wives, children. There is no inclusive language. Uh, in fact, I hate the inclusive language in our society. When they refer to my wife as my partner, my partner, we didn't go into business together, built a family. She's my wife. You know what? There's no inclusive language like that within the Bible. Well, what about the person that has a, a, maybe a same-sex attraction? What if, what if it's something that somebody struggles with? I do think that, obviously, there are people that struggle with those things. And I think it might come from a variety of sources. Some people come across some sort of abuse maybe earlier in their life. In fact, a huge percentage of people that deal with that, research tells us, have had some form of abuse in their background. And so they have this um, unnatural attraction to the same sex. Others maybe subject themselves to things that influence them along these lines as well. I think it might also come to, I'm not going to say it's a genetic factor, they've not found anything that will do that, but I do think just even the fall. We live in a sin-cursed world, and so there's, there's uh, natural deformities, and, and maybe there's some deformities along this line also that would come. But you know what? It doesn't mean that it should be affirmed or approved or followed. You know, I would acknowledge that maybe some people have a more of a tendency toward the sin of uh, alcoholism or drug addiction or violence or fits of rage. But I'm not going to affirm any of those behaviors. I would rather help them overcome 
those behaviors. And that's the same thing that needs to happen within this idea of same-sex attraction. I was just listening to, I think it was a sermon on YouTube or something, and the guy talked about somebody that was a college-age student that he was meeting with before, and he had a... He had put his faith in Christ, and he said, you know what, I I struggle with same-sex attraction. He says, am I supposed to live the rest of my life like in a singleness and never never experience sex? And the guy said, yeah, if that's your temptation, you you need to commit to Christ, and you need to trust Him, and you need to ask Him to transform your way of thinking, and you need to renew your mind through the Scriptures. If you can't overcome it, then you glorify God in singleness. And if you can overcome it, then more power to you. And he said a few years later, that guy was attracted to women. He got married. He was raising a family. His way of thinking, what is beautiful to him, it was transformed, was renewed according to God's principles. And so there, there, is, there is hope. There is, a, there is a way out. For some reason, our society says, you know what, we have a group of people that feel this way, so they should just do it. You know, there's so many other things that we don't say that on. We don't say that to the violent. We don't do that with the alcoholism. Drug addiction, same issue. Just because we feel something inside of us, we're sinners. So we're going to feel sinful things. What if somebody all of a sudden feels attracted to somebody else's wife? Is he free to pursue that attraction? No. To the unmarried, you're going to be attracted toward people of the opposite sex. It doesn't mean that you should pursue that attraction in this way unless it's by pursuing marriage. You see, our feelings should not dictate our behaviors. The the glory of God and the standard of the Word of God is what dictates our behaviors. But it's a natural relationship. Not only is it a natural relationship, it is also a covenantal relationship. Not just dealing with Adam, but for future generations. For man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. What is a wife? A wife is somebody that we enter into a covenantal relationship with. And why do we do this? Because, you know what, God, this is... Built on the nature of God. God is a covenant-making God. God came to Abraham and said, You know what? I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family. And out of through you, I'm going to bless, reach out and bless the whole world. And he's doing that through the salvation, through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. God comes to Moses, and he says, I'm going to deliver you and the whole people of Israel out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you out, and you're, you're my people, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse those that curse you, and I'm... And he gives him that covenant. Even back at the time of Noah, he saves Noah in the ark after the rest of the world is, is destroyed under the wrath of God. And he brings Noah out and he says, Noah, I promise you, I'm not going to do this again. And here's a rainbow in the sky so that you, that's my promise, my covenant to you, that I'm not going to destroy the world in a flood again. And God comes to us in the New Testament, in the new covenant through His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is My Son. I'm sacrificing Him for you. You put your faith in Him and I will deliver you. And so we have a covenant relationship with God. Why is this idea of covenant so important? Because it makes it sure. It's like legal. It's binding. When God made His covenant with Old Testament Israel, they sacrificed animals and they sprinkled blood over everything. In other words, blood and life is in the blood. This is as sure as life. This is solid, unchanging. It's God's promise. And just as God makes a covenant relationship with us, He wants us to mirror that in our husband and wife relationships. When we enter into marriage, we enter into a covenant relationship. We stand up before everybody and we make our vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, forsaking all others. Until death does us part, we enter this covenant that is witnessed. Everybody in the crowd is a witness 
to what we're declaring today. There's a license for it. It's legal. It's a contract. It's, it's binding. It's a covenant. That solid relationship. And that's exactly, that's exactly what God does for us. And it's exactly what He wants from us. Why? Because that covenant means commitment. Well, some, some would say, well, I'm, I'm committed. Why do I need that piece of paper? Well, if you're committed, then get the covenant. What's the big deal? You're not actually legally committed until you do have the covenant. When we participate in sex with one another within marriage, we're expressing our oneness. We're coming together and celebrating the fact that two are one. We're now one before God and others. You know, I think of an example of that in the Bible. I think of Jacob. In chapter 29, Jacob goes to Laban's house, and there he meets Rachel. Rachel's beautiful, and he wants to marry Rachel. And so he asks Laban, he says, I'd like to marry your daughter. I'll work for you seven years. Seven years for Rachel to be my wife. And in Genesis 29, it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Seven years. Seven years he's worked. That's quite a while. It's more than a military term. Seven years Jacob has worked for Rachel. It says, didn't mind it at all. She's totally worth it. He's totally in love with her. And so he's got passion. I would say he's got some commitment there. But then it says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. He's very blunt here to Laban. He's saying, Give me my wife. I want that covenant relationship. I want to go into her. I want to go enjoy my wife. Here's a guy that is head over heels in love for this girl. So much so that he'll commit to working seven years. Seven years his passion is building for Rachel. He's getting to know her more, love her more. So much so that it says the seven years felt like a few days. Can you imagine that? Passion, love, waiting, and then the opportunity to express their oneness. You know what? When we, we take shortcuts and we sell ourselves out. If you have sexual behavior outside of that covenant relationship, it's, it's cheapened. It's diminished. It's not what God intended. God intended so much, something so much greater for you to experience. And that's why, that's why young people, it's worth waiting for. We get tempted to not wait. And our temptations often come to us in the forms of this. Oh, if, if I please him in this way, he'll love me. And I'll feel that love. If she'll do this, then she cares for me. And I'll feel that love. And we rush things. And you know what we find? We violate that standard. And we find an emptiness. We find a hollowness. Because it didn't create it. Sex is intended to celebrate a oneness that is already there. It can't create a oneness that doesn't exist. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, we kind of get an idea. Because our marriage relationship mirrors the gospel. And the Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And it gives that picture of the, of the wife all dressed in, dressed in white and beautiful and coming down the aisle. And why is she coming down to the aisle? She's being presented to the groom. And Christ says, that's what I want for my church. But so many times people are trying to, to fill a, a feeling, a loneliness, a desire for love that they can only find in Christ. And they're trying to fill that with somebody else. And it won't work. When you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that fulfills that, then it actually frees you to enjoy this relationship within the husband-wife relationship all the more. Well, also we see within this passage that it's a private relationship where just the two, two people become one. 
Within this marriage relationship, you share an intimacy, a privacy that all other people are shut out of, that only the two of you participate in. And then it's also a personal relationship, and that's uh, looking at that oneness factor. And, you know, that's why things like pornography are so damaging. Pornography is like trying to experience sexuality, which is designed to illustrate two people becoming one and making it as impersonable as possible. So that the one person that is trying to fulfill themselves with this, with this lust is, uh, doesn't even know the name of the other individual. So as we look at what a God do, He created with us, He created sex. And sexuality is, is good. And in fact, it's created by God to be good. It's commanded by God because it is good. But it's also limited. It's limited because it's important. It's limited because it's valuable. It's limited because inside of, inside of its limitations, it's beautiful. 